from Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Winden. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he said, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love. Ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. That was Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. That never gets old. We hear that every time, and I always appreciate it. So I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio. We're coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio on 909 Islington Street in Portsmouth. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience and to come and be a part of this local, independent community radio station here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight, we have six storytellers on the theme of going the distance and persevering. We also have a small studio audience today. Um, we are in the midst of some renovations here at Portsmouth Community Radio. They are very exciting, but as you know, in the middle of it, a little messy. So thanks to those of you who did squish yourselves in here, and they're going to have to be extra excited because they're so small. So let's hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's see. Also, I want to tell you about our underwriters for tonight's program. Jan Hansen believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station here in the Seacoast. And Pat Spaulding believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? So here's how our show will go tonight. You'll hear from six storytellers, all local folks, bringing us a true story from their life. Everyone has a limit of 10 minutes per story. We have no rating system, no voting. 
That's not what this is about. We're really here to share our stories with each other um, and be more connected that way as a community. I'm now going to pass the mic over to our MC for the night, Pat Spaulding, and she will introduce each storyteller before they come up. Pat. Thanks, Amy. Hi, everyone. First up, we have Michael Lang. He's a local writer and storyteller from Durham, New Hampshire, who enjoys sharing tales of all sorts with audiences of all ages. We've had the pleasure of hearing several of his stories on True Tales Radio. Michael studied outdoor education at UNH, and for nearly a decade, he was a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide. He now works through his small business, The Coyotes Inkwell, as a writer storyteller who educates and entertains with fables, folk tales, and myths from all around the world, as well as telling us his own original stories. The title of his story tonight is South of Duluth. Going the distance. I don't know about you folks listening out there tonight, but when I hear that phrase, two things come to mind. That ethereal voice from the movie Field of Dreams, Go the distance. <laughs> and that song by Cake, He's going the distance. He's going for speed. Well, whether you're out there rambling down the highway in your VW bus chasing dreams or racing and pacing and plotting the course, you're not going to get very far on a blown-out tire. I was one of three wilderness guides leading a trip to northern Minnesota. We were driving our 15-passenger van and our trailer full of boats and equipment north on Highway 35, right along the western shore of Lake Superior, somewhere south of Duluth. When all of a sudden, our trailer began to weave about with a mind of its own. By the time we got pulled over to the shoulder of the road, not only had our right side tire blown out, but it had wrapped itself around the rim somehow into this molten mass of melted rubber. Out came the jack from the back of the van. Out came the spare tire. It was so badly warped onto the rim, it took us about 15 minutes to get this thing off. Then came the real trouble. Finding a new tire. So we started limping our way along the highway, Unfortunately for us, about two miles down the road, we came upon a garage. It looked more like a barn that had been standing in a stiff wind for far too long. It was sort of leaning off to one side. And the office that was attached to it didn't look any better. But there was a flag outside the open door that was blowing in the wind and said open. So we pulled in. And for some reason that I will never understand, the leader of us three guides looked to me the blind man, who knows nothing about cars, nothing about trucks, and even less about trailer tires. All right, pirate. That's what everyone called me in those days. I had cut off my ponytail that I'd been growing through college, and it felt so weird not having anything on the back of my neck that I wore this long red bandana that gave me a sort of Johnny Depp look. <laughs> All right, pirate. We're looking for a number 34 trailer tire. Go see if they have one. All right, do I need to know anything else? Number 34, that's, that's all we need? All right, all right. And so I went in. Went in through the open door, and there standing behind the counter was a short, kind of squat man. He had a mop of long white hair and a mustache to match. And he looked up from the counter and... <laughs> I had to stop and think. Did the Swedish chef 
from Jim Henson's Muppet Show just say hello to me? Uh, yeah, hi, how you doing? Um, you know, I'm looking for a number 34 trailer tire. We had a blowout a couple miles down the road, and hoping you had something by chance. Uh, we're, we're in a real hurry. We're late to meet our group. I was still translating the sure, sure, you betcha, let me see what I've got out back when he motioned for me to follow. As I stepped around the counter and out the back door of the office, I entered this yard that was fenced in by a chain-link fence, and it appeared to be the place where tires go to die. They were scattered around in small couples and groups, like horses that had been put out to pasture. Here and there, there were some that were sunk into the mud as though they already had one foot in the grave, but... My mop-haired companion waved me on to the back corner of this yard where there was this expanse of metal lockers, the most enormous lockers I'd ever seen in my life. And as he slid one door open, it kind of jammed and wiggled about, and with the light that was pouring into that dark space inside the lockers, I could see row after row of brand-new tires, the new generation waiting to replace their older and worn-out brethren. He reached in and he pulled one out. He bounced it as though to show me that it was fully inflated. Um, 33, that's, that's not really what I'm looking for. I really need a, a 34. Okay, He bounced it away. A tire rolled off and fell on its side and lay forgotten while he pawed through the mass of other tires talking to himself. He bounced it again. I really, really think I need a 34. I don't know much about trailer tires, but what I do know is that having two that are different sizes is not a good plan. <laughs> he continued to talk to himself, while bouncing tires all around, throwing them over his shoulder between his legs. They're bouncing off the chain link fence, going everywhere. You know, uh, I'm sure there's a garage down the road that's probably got something. Uh, it's okay. Oh, no, 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 I'm sure there's someone in town down... It's only a few miles to Duluth. I'm sure there's someone in town who has something. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time. And as I turned to walk away, I could almost hear the theme song from the Muppets. As I made my way back to the van and climbed into the passenger seat, the other two guys looked at me. So what's the deal, Pirates? Do you have one? You know, I don't really know. And I don't think we want it even if he does. Just, just drive. So we limped our way along. We limped our way into Duluth, and sure enough, we did find a garage that had a number 34 trailer tire, and they had a little more sophisticated way of telling if it was inflated or not. And we did manage to make it down the road to where we were meeting our group for a long weekend trip in the Superior National Forest in northern Minnesota. And we did have an amazing time, but over the years, the memories from that trip have kind of faded, except for that man that I met somewhere south of Duluth. <laughs> south of Duluth. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Thanks a lot. And the sad fact is, Michael, he's probably still looking for a number 34 tire, <laughs> still bouncing them off the fences. Poor guy. All right. <laughs> Next up, uh, we have Christine Kelly. She is the president of Balanced Business Performance, a consulting firm in Portsmouth that helps small to medium-sized companies grow. 
Christine is also a speaker and a storyteller who lives on the seacoast with her dog Lucy and cat Lizzie. Still, right, Christine? Yes. And tonight she'll tell us the story, Riding in the Rain. So let's soak it in with Christine. Thank you, Pat. Um, so I got my first bicycle when I was about 10. It was a yellow Peugeot 10-speed. And I loved to get on it, and I'd ride every day before school. And I'd get on the streets when they were empty. So my hair would be flying back. I'd be zooming down the hills, just enjoying the peace and quiet of the ride. And it was a perfect way to start the day. Um, then it, later, I moved to Vermont. And by that time, I, I got a mountain bike. And that was a blast. I called it my attitude adjuster. Because whenever I needed to change my tune, I'd just hop on the bike and go for a ride. And I'd go up the hill first, past the farm, and then zoom down the dirt road to the bottom of the hill and then ride around back home along the pavement. The time that I saw the deer was the time that my former husband got me a helmet because he thought, you're going to kill yourself. So <laughs> fortunately, that did not happen. Um, I decided that I needed a bigger challenge. So there was a 150-mile bike ride over three days along the seacoast. It was for the American Lung Association. And a colleague and I just thought we'd give it a shot. So we started out in um, Durham at the school, and we drew, we're, dry, we're riding to Agunquit. It was a beautiful sunny day. We stopped for lunch on this gorgeous hill overlooking a valley with the sun was out, the birds were singing. It was just beautiful. And we got to Agunquit, got to walk on the beach, and had a wonderful time having dinner and talking with all the other people on the ride. Well, the next day we were going from Agunquit to Portsmouth. And it was a little overcast, but not too bad. So everyone at breakfast put on their rain gear, and off we went. By the time we got to Wells, it was pouring and the wind was howling. This little cloudy day turned into a nor'easter. And the sag wagon came along and picked up one by one all the people riding around me just kind of disappeared. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I looked down and I am the only one riding. I didn't really know where I was or where I was going because I think the rain had washed off some of the arrows. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to keep on going. Of course, it probably helped that I never saw that sag wagon again. <laughs> so I'm riding along, and it was with great joy that I saw the bridge to cross over into Portsmouth. And even greater joy when I hit the traffic circle um, and the hotel. But all along the way, I had been buffeted by the wind. I thought I was going to get blown over. I couldn't see rain was in my face, and I did not have a dry stitch on my body. In fact, when I got off my bike and walked in the hotel, there was a puddle that formed all around me. <laughs> but I made it. About 60% of the people got picked up and brought in, and some of them even got hypothermia. But I made it, which was very cool. So of course, I had a nice meal, a cold beer, a nice warm bath, and then a good night's sleep. And fortunately, the next day, it turned sunny again. So the ride from Portsmouth to Durham was again in that beautiful sunshine. And when I got to Durham, 
I was just, I was really happy because I had ridden the entire way, all 150 miles, which to me was a big deal. All of my challenges have been mental. So while it might have been smarter to let them pick me up, (laughs) it wouldn't have been so satisfying. Thank you. Um, thanks, Christine. Um, now we have John Nash. I lost his bio, so I don't know much about him. <laughs> I don't know where he lives or who he lives with, but I did find the title of his story, which I think is perhaps enough information about him because it's the longest and possibly the most interesting title that I have heard to date. This is it. Two bare feet, one Spanish soldier, and a resin bucket near a pine tree. (laughs) If that doesn't pique your curiosity to to hear more, I don't know what will. So, John, step out of your shoes if you need to and approach the podium with two bare feet, one Spanish soldier, and a resin bucket near a pine tree. John? Thank you, Pat. My story tonight involves the sport of orienteering, specifically the time I took part in my first international competition overseas. Before I launch into my story, I should tell you a little bit about orienteering. Orienteering is a sport that involves navigating an unknown course using a map and a compass. Courses are laid out in advance, and the locations and markers to which participants will be attempting to navigate, known as controls, are precisely marked on detailed topographic maps made in advance. Orienteering can take place almost anywhere there's a map, but large meets take place mainly in forests and parklands. If it helps with your visualization, think competitive treasure hunting. I was an active orienteer for many years. After my first couple of years of orienteering, a buddy of mine and I were speaking with a friend on the U.S. national team. She was telling us about competing in Europe, of the large international meets that took place there each summer, and encouraging us both to experience it for ourselves. Hey. We have vacation time. This French five-day event sounds like fun. Why not? Hmm, why perhaps not? Well, to begin with, orienteering is a sport long dominated by Europeans, particularly Scandinavians. U.S. orienteers were as likely to beat Europeans in orienteering as they were to defeat us in baseball. Then there was a little matter of my orienteering. While I love the sport, competitively, I was not known for my top results, but for my often mind-boggling... Let's call them detours. We were in the woods, John. How exactly did you wind up five miles away on the on-ramp of an interstate parkway? (laughs) I was even a charter member of the Bottoms Up Club. No, that had nothing to do with the after-race drink, but with the results list. When you went to see where you were in the standings, members of the Bottoms Up Club looked at the results from, yes, the bottom (laughs) up. So, here I was competing at the lowest level of my age class in the United States, looking at results from the bottom of the list, deciding to head off to France to compete. With the lure of a vacation and a little orienteering in the Aquitaine Forest and on the Atlantic beaches of France in our heads, we entered the meet, made travel arrangements, and headed off. We arrived at the meet registration in the village of Bombin. It's a small village whose population swells in the summers. Holidaymakers come to take advantage of its close proximity to both a large lake and the Atlantic Ocean. We were directed to our accommodations in a vacation condo village known as a vacance and given a map of the woods set aside for training and getting used to French terrain. 
The woods turned out to be vast pine forests, many of them planned, and it was there that we saw our first of many resin buckets, as after tourism, pine products are apparently the number two industry in the region. I was feeling pretty good about everything when we went into the village later for the opening ceremony, and there saw many orienteers, thousands of orienteers, thousands of fit orienteers <laughs> from all over the world. It was at this point when my competitive goal for the event became clear in my mind. I knew I was aiming high, but I was going to go for it. I was going to try and finish next to last. <laughs> Just beat one timed finisher. <laughs> It was also at this point, seeing all these fit and for the most part serious orienteers, that I adopted my mantra for the races. Please don't let the French Foreign Legion have to come find me. Please don't let the French Foreign Legion have to come find me. The first day of competition came, orienteers, thousands of them gathering in the assembly area, set up with a view to the finish line. Since orienteering is a race against the clock, starts are staggered. And every minute, for some five hours, 10 to 15 orienteers in different classes would be given their maps and sent on their way. My main recollections of that day, besides why did I ever think running through a recently logged area of downed trees was ever going to be fast, was simply a fear, that French Foreign Legion thing, and of the adrenaline making me move quicker than I ever had before. It's too bad I wasn't more focused and I could have remembered what I did, because whatever I did worked. I had the best run of my life to that point, just below the middle of the standings. Maybe it was the euphoria of the result. Maybe it was the wine, the vacant dining room served with dinner each night, but something went to my head because navigationally, things went south on day two. Actually, there were several times when I should have gone south, but for whatever reason, the euphoria, the wine, the fact that this night owl had a 7.45 a.m. start time, I was arguing with my compass throughout the course. It wasn't gonna make, it wasn't gonna take much for my entire run that day to totally fall apart. And then, as if on cue, there in the sky was a squadron of French Air Force Mirage fighter jets on a training run out over the Atlantic. For several minutes, I ran along mesmerized at the sight in the sky. Do you know what you are not doing when you are watching jets in the sky? <laughs> That's right, you are not paying attention to the terrain, you're not paying attention to your compass or the map. Luckily for me, the forest for that day's competition was along the Atlantic Ocean, so I set my compass west, head for the sand dunes, and relocate. Eventually, somehow, I don't remember, I managed to finish my course. Even though it took me several hours, those I'd ridden to the meet with that day, with start times around noon, were just getting ready to go to the start area. I was asked if I could take pictures of the others as they came into the finish area, which featured a long finish shoot along the beach. No problem. I changed into shorts, t-shirt, and running shoes, applied sunblock, gathered up all the cameras, and headed for the tops of the dunes to get some shots of orienteers coming out of the forest. Then I thought I would get some crowd shots and finish shots along the beach. And since dipping my toes in the ocean sounded like a good idea, I took off my running shoes. I got some great shots in those next two hours. It was also then that I got the realization that I'd forgotten to do something when I headed back to the beach. That's right, apply sunblock to my feet. <laughs> By nightfall, my feet were red and painful. Okay, the wine with the Muscles Mediterranean at dinner helped to relieve some of it, but I was in a bit of a quandary. I still had three days of competition left, three days of socks and tightly laced orienteering shoes to get on my feet. How was this going to work? So I told myself, when the going gets tough, the tough get shuffling. With socks stretched as much as I could stretch them and shoes very loosely tied, I actually shuffled through the French forest on days three and four. 
As you might expect, I plummeted in the standings faster than, pick your favorite analogy, let's say the Dow Jones average during the crash of 29. So with four days of competition behind me and only one race left to go, I found myself in a three-way battle for last place with a Spanish soldier and a student from the University of Wales. <laughs> Theoretically, at least, my goal of next to last was still within reach. <laughs> The last races on day five had what is known as a chasing start. At 8 a.m. in the morning, the leader in each class would start, and then each of the remaining competitors in the class would start the length of time after 8 a.m. that they were behind the leader. If you were 10 minutes behind, you'd start at 8, 10 a.m. If you were an hour behind the leader, you'd start at 9 a.m. When my start time was computed, I realized I would have time for lunch, a nap, a snack, and maybe even a quick swim before I was going to start <laughs> orienteering. My buddy pointed out that I should be somewhere in the woods at the time the award ceremony was scheduled to end. <laughs> the hours passed. I arrived at the pointed time at the start. I started my course, began shuffling, but my now peeling feet hurt worse than ever. I loosened my shoes, making my shuffle a sort of scuffing, the type you do in ill-fitting bedroom slippers. I slowly forged on, and then about four controls from the end of my course, a sort of miracle happened. I encountered another orienteer looking lost, but obviously looking for the same control I was. Why was it obvious? He was wearing a University of Wales orienteering suit. It was my competition. What I should have been thinking is if I pass him and stay ahead of him, I would not be last. Instead, what I thought was, this guy has a paunch that his orienteering top doesn't cover. He must be doing this orienteering because his college is insisting on a phys ed credit and the lawn bowling class was full up. How can I be at risk of losing to this guy? Do you know what kind of that kind of distracted thinking gets you? That's right, as lost as he was. And guess which one of us got back on course first? That's right, not me. Now convinced I was destined to finish last, I dejectedly pushed on. All I wanted to do was slink anonymously across the finish line and find a bucket of cold water or more likely in those parts, a resin bucket full of cold pine tar to just stick my feet into. Now there were just three controls to go. The next control I get to will make two. Oh no. It seems to add to the pageantry of the day. The last two controls were on the streets of the village, as in spectators, villagers. It was going to be next to impossible to be anonymous, especially with my scuff scuff gait. I tried to block out the spectators, but I couldn't. I was especially moved by the large number of older women who ran up to me from their yard shouting, Allez, allez, come on, come on, to cheer me on. As the finish line came in sight, I was motivated to do my version of a sprint to the wire, a double time scuff scuff. After crossing the finish line, having surrendered my map and punch card, I was given a race souvenir, of all things a replica resin buck and candle, as an official finisher. As I was leaving the finish shoot, I came across my buddy, and I remarked that, as bad as my feet felt and my navigation had been, at least I had the memory of all those French grandmothers cheering me on. Uh, John, he began, it wasn't all those French grandmothers. It was just one older French woman, but she was really spry following around the village like that with her cane. <laughs> so there I was. I had blown my chance to pass my Welsh competition. I'd been outrun through village streets by an octogenarian with a mobility device, and the only thing I had left to do was check the standings to see how far and last I was. I didn't believe what I saw. Yes, starting from the bottom, I had to go up one. Up one! I wasn't last. 
Somehow I had managed to beat the Spanish soldier. My next to last quest was complete. One of these days, one of my contemporary goals is to travel to Spain. While there, through the power of search engines, I hope to look up that Spanish soldier. I still remember his name, Miguel Martin Trainor, and invite him out for a drink to talk about that week in the Aquitaine Forest. I plan on offering the first toast, which will simply be Ale Ale. Thank you. <laughs> The time is 7.03, and you are listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm Amy Antonucci, and now, coming back to introduce our next storytellers, Pat Spaulding. Allez, allez, just have to say it again. <laughs> next up, we have Marcy Brown. She lives in North Berwick, Maine, and has a technical communications background. Marcy is currently an independent contract, yeah, contact, contract writer in the process of building her copywriting business. She also professes to be a recently reformed health nut. I met her at a class at Great Bay Community College where we exchanged some stories. She later attended one of our True Tales workshops with a very compelling story that she's now ready to share with all of us. It's titled... A quarter of a million dollars. Thank you, Pat. Og Mandino, a prolific author born in Framingham, Massachusetts in 1923, wrote The Greatest Salesman in the World. He was also quoted as saying one of my favorite quotes, which is, Beginning today, treat everyone you meet as if they were going to be dead by midnight. <laughs> Extend to them all the care, kindness, and understanding you can muster, and do it without any thought of any reward. Your life will never be the same again. Thank you, Og. It was not a dark and stormy night. No, it was an ordinary Monday morning meeting with my boss and my teammates. It was Midsummer's Eve of 2011, which would have been June 20th. And we were in his office, my boss's office, for about an hour listening to a vendor on speakerphone. And after the meeting ended, everybody got up to return to their desks. I got up, my left foot was asleep. And of course that's happened before. So I got up with the usual idea of waking it up on my way back to my desk. So I did the usual running around and pounding and nothing happened, it stayed asleep. So I finally decided I'll have to just keep moving around, which I did. And it came back, I started to feel functionality again, but I didn't feel the ginger ale-like feeling that accompanies the reawakening of a sleeping limb. So I thought, okay, that's kind of funny, but I went back to work, everything was fine. My friend Nancy called me on the phone and said, do you wanna go downtown and get coffee? I said, yes, so we went downtown, I told her about it. I said, it was funny though, I didn't wake up in the normal way, and she, in the way I had become accustomed to from her, reassured me that everything was fine, and I said, okay, you're right, it's nothing. So I brushed it off, drove home, I was living in Maine, working in Massachusetts, so I drove home to Maine that afternoon, as usual. The next morning, I was scheduled to work from home. So this was good because I was wondering if this would happen again. It did not. I had a great day. Everything was fine. On Wednesday, it happened again. It happened so many times that I developed a routine where every time I would lose feeling while I was working at my desk at home, I would get up, walk into my bedroom, and sit on the bed 
with my legs straight out in front of me and the feeling would come back. And so I had determined in my mind that it was positional, never stopping to think, what does that even mean? Or where did you get that idea? I just sort of accepted there's something positional going on because when I changed position, I would get functionality back. So this went on all day Wednesday. Thursday morning, I got up at, as usual, at about 6 a.m., and I was on guard now to see if this would keep happening, and sure enough, it happened again. So I called my local doctor's office, and they weren't open yet. So I called until they were open. I told them what was going on, and they said, we have an appointment this afternoon at 1.30. I said, you should probably see me now. They said, okay, come on down. So I went over there. I drove up. And my doctor was not in. It was uh, her day off. But her husband, who's a osteopath, a DO, was there. He took a look at me. He took my blood pressure. It was 212 over 110, which you probably know is not a good thing. You don't want that. So he began to quiver. He actually shook. This is the doctor. I'm the patient. And he's quivering, looking at me. And he says, you have to go to the emergency department right now. I'm afraid you're going to have a stroke. Well, looking at him, I thought he might have a stroke. He, he looked like he was. So that was the only conversation we had. I said, okay, I went out and got in my car and by myself, I drove to the hospital, which was 30 minutes away. And I was terrified and I'm thinking, what's going to happen? Of course, by now I'm having an out-of-body experience. So I drove to the hospital and he had promised me as I left that he would call ahead and they would know I was coming and they'd recognize me when I got there and they'd know what to do. So I walked into the emergency department with a flourish expecting everybody to say, Marcy, how are you? Well, come on in. Not a word. The nurse said, oh, have a seat. And have a seat and I'm thinking 212 110 oh my. so then she got me up and she said I have a few questions for you she gave me a form to fill out and I said you know we might want to bypass this and I told her why and she ushered me right in so they got me on nitroglycerin they were very effective they, they went right into action because they realized this was no joke so then I was in the emergency department ward in the back where they have bays where they put you when they don't know what else to do. And they had me on drugs and they're trying to figure out what had happened. And the emergency uh, doctor on call came over to do an exam and he felt a mass in the abdominal area. So he called his physician's assistant over and he said, check this patient out. And she did. And he said, what did you feel? And she concurred. It was the same thing. She noticed it too. And so they asked me if I knew about it, and I said no. And, of course, if I had, I would have mentioned it. But uh, it turned out there was a mass. I was booked into the hospital about two hours later. They kept me overnight. I had a roommate who was a woman who was in there. I'm not sure why she was in there, but she had sleep apnea, so they had her on a special breathing machine so that she wouldn't stop breathing in the middle of the night. And uh turns out I did not sleep that night, but she slept extremely well. And so all I could hear was that machine all night, but I'm glad she did well. And so then the next day they came, a team of them came in, and my regular physician came back, and she... uh she was there to see what was going on, and they said, you know, we found a mass. They gave me a CT. In fact, I had 11 CTs and 12 MRIs throughout the experience. Uh, I was totally out of it. I didn't know about all this radiation being thrown at me, so I didn't fight back. I never said a word about it. I was just in another place. But they decided they had to send me to Maine Medical Center because of the mass, the abdominal mass, because they couldn't deal with it there. This was a small regional hospital. 
So I took an ambulance up to Maine Medical, which was quite expensive, as you can well imagine, and I was booked into Maine Medical Center where I stayed 26 days. The reason is they determined that I had a mass that was probably a tumor that needed to be removed, and with someone having strokes as I was, you can't just do operating because they had me on a blood thinner. They had me on Coumadin by then to try to keep me from having another stroke. So the question was, can we get her stable on the strokes and then can we take out the tumor? And that was the plan. And there were 11 doctors on the team and I forget what they all were. I had a oncology surgeon, I had hematologists, so many I can't even remember what they all were. But they were, a lot of head scratching went on during this time. And they tried to figure out what had happened to me, what was going to happen next, and where to go from there. And I'm not really sure how they figured out how to get a direction with 11 people involved. If you've ever tried to organize three people or more, you know how that can be. But they eventually decided stabilize the strokes, which they did, and then do the operation. So on July 12th, I was taken into the operating theater. On the way there, I was given a cocktail by the nurse, which is all I remember. And then when I awoke, I was in a, an area, it was like a playoff game in Boston. There was so much noise, and there were curtains around my bed. I was in the recovery area, very noisy, very exciting. I didn't know where I was. I was hallucinating and... Uh, I ended up back in my room. I had a roommate who had a fondness for Dilaudid, which was the drug they gave me for pain after surgery, available via a push-button device by your bed. And you soon learn that when you push the button, the pain just disappears immediately. And you have to be careful not to push it too often or you disappear just as quickly as the pain did. So I'm back in my room, uh, stapled up from the operation, getting ready to try to get myself back home. It took another week. A week later, it was time for me to go home. A resident came in to remove my staples from my scar from the surgery. He had trouble with one of them, but he kept at it and he finally got it out. He taped me up. My sister, who had come from Alaska to be with me during this time, was driving my car, so she drove us back to my house. We stopped and got all the prescriptions, and we went back to my house. It was so good to be home. I sat in my living room. She went into the kitchen to fix us something to eat for being back to celebrate. And I looked down at my shirt, and there was a small spot of blood. I said, uh-oh, something. So then I lifted it, and I looked under the bandage, and I could see it was just gurgling out. out that staple that he had the problem with was why. That was the area that was not holding. So... I called my sister, she ran in, she looked, she said, uh-oh, call the doctor. So I called my local doctor, they asked me what was going on, I told them, they said, what are you doing about it? I said, we're trying to staunch the flow. She said, uh, okay, keep doing what you're doing, and if you need more help, give us a call back. <laughs> so my sister said, call the surgeon's office. So I called the surgeon's office, of course she wasn't there. Her nurse wasn't there either. I got the nurse's voicemail and I told her what was happening on voicemail. Got a call back about 30 minutes later and by now I've got a lot of blood on the front. And she asked me what I was doing about it and I told her, trying to staunch the flow and then she said, well keep doing what you're doing and if you need more help, call me back. My sister and I looked at each other and exchanged a look that only comes from knowing someone all your life. She grabbed my car keys and she said, keep the blood shirt on. And we drove off to the local hospital where it had all begun. And 
This time, I didn't have to say anything when the doors parted to the emergency department. There I was with the dinner plate blood on my shirt like a target, and right in. There was no argument. There was no filling out forms. They took me in. There was a wonderful doctor and a wonderful male nurse, and what they did was they cleaned me up, and they gave me new staples, and they gave me vitamin K to stop the bleeding because I was on Coumadin, and uh, they gave me a new shirt. So I went home and I changed my life. I cleaned up everything. I got off the junk food. I believe that's what, the, what happened to me. I believe that if I hadn't been eating so much junk and been overweight, that I probably wouldn't have gotten that cancerous tumor. I'm just guessing, but that's what I think. So I stopped eating all the, the bad food and I started exercising every day. I changed my vitamin and supplement regimen. I started doing self-hypnosis. Everything is about being healthy. And I'm very grateful that I got through it and was able to fix those things. So the final hospital bill was $256,000.44. And a bag of Utz potato chips is a dollar. <laughs> well, for those of you at home listening and not watching, like to report that Marcy looks great. <laughs> and I'm leaving that bag of potato chips that's half open and half eaten. Just, I'm going to let that go stale because it's time to change my life too. Next up we have James Ouellette. He lives in Epping, New Hampshire. He's a regular volunteer at WSCA and also one of our True Tales radio regulars who often attends programs and workshops. James is a good listener and an avid theater fan who has written reviews for the internet site examiner.com. This will be the second story James has told on True Tales Radio. It is the short autobiography of his early life titled Silver Linings. Come on up, James. Um, I was born at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston on October 27, 1989. My mother found out she was pregnant with twins in the spring of that year, and after discovering that both of us were enduring what is called twin-to-twin transfusion, d d delivered via emergency cesarean section three months early. Um, I came into the world at a sickly one pound 13 ounces, and my brother Daniel came into the world um, at 3 pounds, 10 ounces. And we were rushed to the NICU, short, um, which stands for um, ne ne Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, for those of you who don't know. Um, shortly after the birth, my mother was resting in her hospital room, and my father phoned and said, um, my mom, when she picked up the phone, she said, What's wrong? You have to come down here now. We're losing one of them, my father managed to say through tears. Um, no, let me rest, my mother told him. No, you, you don't understand. We're losing one of the twins. So my mom came down there, and by the time she got down there, um, Daniel had, had passed, and um, 
they were extremely sad um having lost a child but I guess in any event their grief was short-lived because they had me to focus on so after two months in the Brigham Women's NICU I was relocated to the Elliott Hospital in Manchester for two months then finally in March 1990 I was brought home looking like a strange science experiment which I must say must have frightened my sister who was three at the time <laughs> Um, but I still had a long road ahead of me. In-home nursing gave way to speech, occupational, and physical therapies. Um, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy the day before my first birthday, and asthma a few short years later. I also went through 12 surgeries, and countless illnesses as well. My early memories, um, shaped who I am today, and revolve around people, places, and things. My old preschool where I met my best friend, Stephanie, um, 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 is now a house in Newfield, um, and, um, 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 I have plenty of memories from that, um, um, and, um, um, as for me, I'm a big musical theater and, um, and old television buff, and um, I credit my grandmother and my school aide Candace introducing me to um, the, those things. Um, my grandmother, she would, um, we would drive around in her old Toyota Corolla, singing along to the songs of Rodgers and Hammerstein, the musicals like Cinderella and The King and I and South Pacific and all those wonderful old shows. And my former school aide, Candace, she introduced me to um, a lot of television shows from the 1950s, saying, oh, this is the episode of I Love Lucy where Lucy got, Lucy and Ethel worked in the chocolate factory. <laughs> um, and um, I guess, like many kids my age, I watched Disney's finest animated films, Sometimes I was with, sometimes with my siblings, sometimes alone. Um, I've had a tough journey, but as the old song says, look for the silver lining. Um, I believe that out of, ev that out of every bad situation comes good. And I know that life won't always be coming up roses, like the song says. Um, but I do believe firmly that with faith, family, luck, and hard work, any situation that you're in will turn out for the best. Thank you, James. That's a good story about perseverance and optimism. James, as well as being one of the most persevering guys I know, is one of the biggest optimists I know. So we look forward to more stories from you about your ongoing life of theater appreciation and so forth. <laughs> I'd like to meet your grandma. Maybe it's too late. All right. Skip Clark is coming up next. He's from Agunquit, Maine. He considers himself to be a retired businessman who, at heart, has always been a wanderer adventurer. He sometimes writes of his adventures, like sailing through gale storms on an old wooden boat from Maine to Cuba, singing Sinatra songs in local nightclubs, and completing seven full marathons. His story tonight is titled Going the Distance. 
Come on up, Skip. <clears throat> Going the distance. In the year 490 B.C., Pheidippides, a professional running messenger, was told to deliver the news from Marathon to Athens, Greece, 26 miles away, that the battle was won. 2,398 years later, in 1908, 385 yards was added to the 26-mile historical marathon distance in order that the race could end in front of the Royal Box at White Stadium in, Lo in London, where a portly King Edward sat watching the world-class runners finish. And 69 years later, in 1977, I was able to finish my own first full Manhattan Marathon in Central Park, New York City. When my New York City apartment neighbor Jill announced on Labor Day that year that she was going to quit smoking, I responded, I will quit also, and if I do, I'll run the marathon. With only eight weeks until race, until race day, it was quite a challenge and I began training to go the distance. That summer I had completed many six-mile loops around Central Park, but going the distance, the full 26.2 miles, was like imagining an ascent of Mount Everest or a personal unreachable star, my own impossible dream. To accomplish the full marathon, it is said that a novice, or any man for that matter, should become comfortable with at least one 20-mile training run in order to have a chance at the full 26.2-mile distance. With only eight weeks to go before race day, I began adding distance to my long Sunday outings, 8, 10, 12, 13, 15, 18, and finally a week before the race, I traveled the full 20 miles and began to lower my weekly mileage and rest. The New York City Marathon had been a four-loop circling of Central Park until in 1976 it was moved to the five boroughs of the city as the running rage increased. Beginning on Staten Island and across the Verrazano Bridge to Brooklyn, the course continued through Queens and then crossing the Queensboro Bridge into Manhattan at mile 16. Along Manhattan's First Avenue, the cheering spectators are six deep on either side of the route, inducing a false energy, an adrenaline, which allows the pavement to seemingly sing beneath one's feet along the straight four-mile celebratory avenue. At that point, upon, excuse me, until, until the 20-mile marker at the Willis Avenue Bridge and the crossing into the Bronx. At that point, upon entering a distance where I had never been before, I began to feel the discomfort of what marathoners refer to as hitting the wall, when the body's store of glycogen is nearly used up and the temptation to stop the discomfort increases. I mentioned to a young man who had been running next to me for several miles that I was beginning to feel that my tank was nearing the empty mark and he gave me a simple three-word response. Nobody quits now, and we continued on. 
through the Bronx and back into Manhattan, the final six miles were a mix of growing bodily deadness and mental elation, spurred on by the cheering throng and the possibility of actually finishing my first full marathon. The head is lower to the chest, and the legs have lost resilience and lift. But now it is totally a condition of mind over matter, and nobody quits now. Point two as a decimal is a rather insignificant unit of measure, as in two cents worth of candy or a penny for your thoughts. Except in marathon distance, when it is another matter entirely. At Columbus Circle, the 26-mile mark, a runner has completed 45,760 yards of the route. So what matter can a mere 385 additional yards to the finish be? Imagine being compelled to run nearly four football fields in length when the bottle reserves have been totally expended and you have nothing left to propel you onward but willpower and sight of the distant finish line and the digital clock blinking above it. With the mix of energy-producing carbohydrates, glycerin, and glycogen fully burned and expended, the body's means of propulsion reverts to another source of power, mind over matter. In the days of excitement following that first marathon, mixed with my personal joy and feeling of well-being, a lingering thought remained. Whatever happened to my nameless co-runner, the man who gave me that enduring notion at the 20-mile mark, nobody quits now. I did not see him travel onward in front of me, and I was too tired to have been much faster than him. He simply disappeared from my side. Did he quit, after giving me the message that propelled me onward? What I know for sure is that I carried his message to the finish line and was able to go the distance. In the many years following that race, I understand that I acquired a personal knowledge of how to persevere during troubled times in business and my personal life, as well as the understanding that not all goals in life are chosen wisely, and some even in haste, and there is a time for all of us to stay the course or bail out, regroup, and go on with life and a new goal cho chosen more wisely since even while supposedly failing in a certain endeavor, there is always time for a new challenge, yet a new opportunity to go the distance. Recently, I decided to improve my physical condition and began jogging on the grass of a nearby ball field when the snow had finally melted. Once around the field on my first day back seemed like a small but worthy accomplishment, and tomorrow I'll try two laps and continue to extend my outings within reason. I know I'm not really running as I did years ago. Now it is more like a slow jogging or a semi-quick shuffle. <laughs> but it is movement, and I feel good about it. And when I'm done, and I imagine going longer distances in my remaining tomorrows... We have a surprise storyteller, I think. Drumroll for 
give him time to get here. Come on, come on. All right, John Lovering, our producer, has a short story to bring us. And then we'll hear from a little even shorter pieces from our audience. So um, here we go. John Lovering, longtime Portsmouth Community Radio volunteer. Yes. And uh, I just, I just, listening to your stories, I got just, you know, this brought back a memory. And this is very short, but I just thought I'd share it with you because some of your stories were so inspiring in the particular instant that I'm thinking of. But it was a, a cold uh, fall morning uh, in the town of Hampton, probably, as I recall, about 1990, maybe 91. And it was in the fall, like in October. And, uh, I may not look it, but I am a world-class bicycle rider. You look it. No, I'm just kidding you. Um, anyway, I had purchased a, a new bicycle, and uh, I had been riding it regularly up to Odeon Point. And from my house to Odeon Point and back was 26 miles, and I was doing that two or three times a week. And uh, I would always go early in the morning. So I got up this one Sunday morning quite early. It was around you know, 7 o'clock. I used to like to ride right along that ocean ride, you know, all up through Rye and so forth, and without a lot of traffic. So I, I went down High Street, turned, turned left uh, to, to head north up Route 1A. And when I got to the first intersection, there were all these police cars. There were blue lights going. I thought, oh, boy, somebody's gotten into an accident. There's an accident there. So I kind of slowed down, and the police officer motioned me through the intersection, and I kept on going. So I'm riding my bike, and I'm riding along, looking at my speedometer, trying to get a little, you know, keeping the cadence up, trying to do as best I could, try to go a little bit faster. But I don't know, I was just kind of pacing myself, but I really wasn't pumping it out. And I'm riding along, and all of a sudden, there's a few people standing side the road, and I went by, and they waved to me, and I waved hi. I had no idea who they were. <laughs> and so I waved, and they applauded when I went by. And I said, okay, okay, this is kind of cool. So I'm riding along, and I'm riding along, and I go up around the, the, all those rocks up in Rye, where, you know, full of gardens are, and around there, and we come down towards the Rye Beach area, and along where all the, the rocks are there, and... Uh, before the state park, and there were quite a few more people standing side the road, and there were some were getting out of their cars, and they turned and they saw me, and they waved and they applauded, and I, hey, <laughs> and I began to realize I was going faster, and my heart was pumping. I looked and I said, man, I'm setting, and all of a sudden I saw a water bottle in the road. Somebody dropped their water bottle. Hey, it looked like a good one. I pulled over, I picked the water bottle up. <laughs> put it in the back of my pocket, and I get back on the bike, and I'm riding, and I continue up the road, and there's more people. And as I got towards Odeon Point, there were more and more people. And, and then there was this really loud cheer as I got not too far from Odeon, and I looked behind me, and there was a, a, a truck fairly close behind me. He was probably like 50 feet back. And I said, what the heck is this guy? And I kept motioning him by me. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't go by. So I said, all right. So I just kept on riding. And I got up. Finally, I got over. There was a yellow line in the road. And there were lots of people going the other way. And they were going really fast. <clears throat> I crossed this yellow line. It said, turn here. And I said, well, I know that. I come up here all the time. <clears throat> and when I, when I turned around, this, this van or truck came up beside me. And he turned, too. And I saw what it said. It said, end of race on, 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 on his back of his van. I was the last one. Everybody thought I was in a race. It was a triathlon. And I was the last person. And they thought I was in. They were cheering for me because I was the last guy. And I'm waving to them. That's my story. Oh, John, that was great. <laughs> 
All right. Um, so we had some great stories tonight. And before we um, completely end, we have asked our audience a question, our in-studio. It's very small tonight. But we asked the in-studio audience this question. Is there an endeavor that you worked hard and long to achieve and persevere at? And we have some folks who are going to share just a couple sentences about that. And they're coming up now, I hope. Yes, there's movement. Things are happening. I'm glad to report. All right. Come on up. And you can share your name if you'd like. Hello, I'm Toby. And... Uh... As I was waiting for this show to start, I was sitting outside, leaning against my car, surrounded by some old friends and new friends, sticking herbs to my wrist and lighting them on fire. And this was a very odd thing. This was very new. And we talked. I was like, what you doing? Well, it's Chinese traditional medicine. This is like, well, why? Got some hand things? Like, yeah. I've had three wrist surgeries. been in pain for 16 years. And we, we smiled and we joked about it. So that's, that's why I came up here. That's Perseverance in a way. All right. And we have Sharon. Is Sharon going to come up? Is that what's uh, happening? Uh, I'm going to take this because all your stories got me going, and so I'm going to have to put the two minute sign okay. on my head. All right, so I don't, Sharon do, I don't know how to do it quick. Has been um, a storyteller here before, and she's going to give us um, a little snippet or something. We'll see. Go, Sharon. Uh, all right, here, I'll help you. You help me. I was touched by everybody's story. Um, my story of perseverance, in a nutshell, um, was when it started after my husband passed away and I took care of him. We were very isolated for a while and I, um, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and was isolated further by my illness, lost all my hair, um, tried to reintegrate myself into the community where I've grown up in, in Portsmouth, and I would walk around and nobody knew me. They didn't recognize me. And... Um, it was, it was tough. And I saw her in the spotlight. Um, I was at my sister's reading and I saw her in the spotlight about this radio station that was going to be doing true tales. And I called John and if I'd emailed him, like I, my kids always want, you got to email, you got to email. You just, you can't call, you got to email. And I, oh, I hope they're not listening. And I, <laughs> I know I can't. <laughs> so I called John and John talked to me like I was going to die before midnight. I don't think he knew it, but that's how he talked to me, and that's why I dared to come, and I could because I couldn't let him down. And that was the beginning of my returning to the community, and it gave me so much confidence, and somebody in the audience knew me from, so I had been volunteering, so they came up to me afterwards and said, I know you, and, you know, and it was great. So it was just great, and, yeah, so now, and then it just gave me the courage, and I went and volunteered at the senior center in Portsmouth, and now I have, and I work for them now, they hired me, and now I have something, if I forget, I put it around my neck, and it says City of Portsmouth, and there's, it's a badge, and it's a picture of me with the old hair before the new hair came back, the little funny hair, because I lost all my hair. So that's, you know, that's it in a nutshell. Oh, that's lovely. We are so happy to have Sharon in the community. She's been a regular here at the station for these and always a joy to see. So thank you. All right. Is there, um, have I, anyone else here in the studio walking up? No, looks quiet out there. Oh, we've got one more. What? I think you want to go for one more. 
Well, it's it's just you don't have to. Just uh, we have a little time if you want to give a little. So I'm Mike. I told the first story tonight, and been on the show a lot of times. And I always talk about my eyesight. Uh, one thing that not everybody knows, and that I don't talk about on the radio show often, is that I needed a kidney transplant about eight years ago. And so to my parents and siblings, not all of them directly related to me, whoever they may be, for persevering alongside me. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. That was a great thing to share. All right. We're going to end here for tonight. We have many more shows ahead of us, but for tonight, we again thank our six wonderful storytellers, plus one, plus three. So to everyone who shared tonight, thank you so much. And to those who came and were in our tiny little audience space that we had in this ripped-up studio, you'll have a story to tell, right? About looking up and seeing, whoa, what's up there? Echoey. So, True Tales Radio will be back on May 26th. Our theme is Letting Go. And we have hopes that the studio will be really brand new and fresh and sparkly. So, join us then to come and see what we've done here. It's going to be really exciting. So, I'm Amy Antonucci, and until next time, we are going to turn this over to John Lovering to finish up Audio Theater. Thank you, Amy, and thank you very much to our storytellers. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to play a song here, and then we're going to come back and uh, take care of a few orders of business here that we want to clean up, and I'll tell you about next week's show on Audio Theater. Uh, but this is a, a special song uh, that I'm going to play for you. New Hampshire Gentlemen is what they're called. They're an a cappella group out of UNH, and uh, this is a, a Wake Up XO medley, uh, Beyonce. That's a cover that they did. It's on YouTube. And uh, I saw it, and I said, this is great. These guys are, are an a cappella group from University of New Hampshire, and I'd like you to listen to this. I, th- I think you will enjoy it. Give you everything.